And I'm Melina. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right, and we hope your audio player has a good reception. <laughs> like a wedding reception. Yeah. Yep. So what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, while we were putting together our previous episode, uh-huh. episode 13, mm-hmm. some actual history was made Yeah. So here in this city. We're going to talk about the Chicago Cubs. And maybe by the end of it, you'll be excited too. Okay. (laughs) Place your bets now, folks. Tell tell me about that. Looking into this, there's a whole lot more history to them and fun stories that uh, didn't quite make it into the papers during their, their magical year. I was definitely skipping over those articles. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, a big one is that the Chicago Cubs are the oldest active professional sports organization in North America. Huh. Nobody has been a team longer than the Chicago Cubs organization. I assume that's with like keeping the name and everything type thing. No, no, no. Active, They've or? gone through many, many name changes. Oh. So uh, let's get into those early days. Start well, at the beginning, right? Okay. Way back in the day, we're talking about the mid-1800s, uh, baseball was mostly played in the American Northeast, where different cities had different rules. The New York game sort of caught on the most, which is a shame because you couldn't like throw balls at people as they ran around the bases. What? It was like... <laughs> Dodgeball, but baseball? Yeah, like, you know how when you're playing kickball, you can throw somebody out by, like, hitting them with the ball? Yeah. That used to be a baseball rule (sighs) in certain non-New York cities. Time to bring this back. (laughs) And injuries go straight through the roof. Uh, But uh, the the Civil War really spread the game uh, to the Midwest and, and across the nation as it was and homogenized the rules because people from different areas had to agree on something so they could play each other properly and stop arguing about like house rules and right just like people do with monopoly nowadays that's not how we do it in uh boston well we're not in boston we're in antietam come on let's make some allowances uh so the national association of baseball players uh rose as the first governing body and organized the first baseball championship games uh they didn't do much else really it was strictly an amateur organization they had rules against compensating players at all if they found out you were getting paid uh even like a a travel stipend that that's that's a no-no you're out Mm. very different from nowadays yeah (laughs) but the thing is if you want to play games you want to get good players and if you're going to attract players you got to do something so there was always this drive to, to skirt around those rules. So they split into two bodies to, to sort of serve that demand in 1871 when the National Association of Professional Baseball Players was created. Ah. That, that little word is very important, very different. So the Chicago Baseball Club uh, was the very beginning of what we now know as the Cubs. Uh, They didn't have a nickname. They didn't have a mascot. They just were the Chicago Baseball Club. At the time, sports writers, would, when they wrote about teams, would would talk about them according to their uniform colors. So they were the Chicago White Stockings. Wait. Yeah. Wait. (laughs) 
the Cubs used to be known as the White Stockings originally. Were they still the White Stockings when the White Sox came around? Hey, I'm not sharing any spoilers here. Hmm. <laughs> they hmm. they played their very first game uh, April 29th, 1870 against the St. Louis Unions, and Chicago won with the incredible score 47 to 1. That's impressive. Now, I do have a question. Yes. How how did sports writers write about the St. Louis Unions? What was their like uniform trait? They all were, were constantly on strike against factory owners. Really? I don't know. Well, <laughs> but you just told me this thing, and now you don't have the details? <laughs> I well, want to be able to imagine what their uniforms looked like. If you look up, like, rosters of teams from the uh, NABBP era, you're, you're going to see just lists of uh, brown stockings, red stockings, blue stripes... Just about uh, uh, two out of the three teams. But then there are a few like uh, the Union, the Nationals, that had more, I guess, namey names, less fashion-based. So, so they were never called by their uniform then? I don't believe that uh, this St. Louis team was. Okay. By the end of that year, they had joined the uh, National Association of Baseball Players and won the championship, the first team outside New York City to win, or at least outside what is now New York City. Hmm. Brooklyn was separate at the time. Uh, the following year, when they had that split, uh, Chicago did that splitting and became a charter member of the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. They had a pretty good run that year uh, until the Great Chicago Fire burned their field and equipment. Uh, but they still finished uh, the season in second place, playing in borrowed uniforms. Where where was their uh, field? Their field was uh, in Grant Park. Yeah, that burned. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, this league favored players and had little authority over clubs, which you might guess because it's the Association of Baseball Players, not teams or anything like that, right in the name. William Hubert, president of the White Stockings, saw an opportunity for improvement. So he founded the National League with eight member teams. Uh, Chicago is the only one of those eight that's still playing in the same city. The Boston Red Stockings uh, were also there, but you're thinking, wait, the Boston Red Stocks are still in Boston. The Boston Red Stockings became the Atlanta Braves. Oh. <laughs> well, is that like one of those things where like the team started there and then like in Boston, then went to Atlanta? And then a brand new team came and sort of claimed the legacy of that original name. Ah. Yeah. Foreshadowing. So yeah, you've got eight teams. Chicago's still around. The Boston team is now in Atlanta. What happened to the other six? Well, three were expelled for bad behavior. Aww. And the other three folded because of, like, financial trouble. That happens. That happens. But at the same time, non-charter members were, were constantly being pulled in. Uh, they currently have 15 teams and make up half of Major League Baseball. But the, the National League took control of scheduling for their member teams. Uh, they gave teams the power to make and enforce multi-year contracts. In fact, when Hubert built uh, the Chicago team that he wanted, he did it by breaking the rules of the National Association of Professional Baseball Players before he had created the thing to replace it. Oh. So <laughs> it's like, this, I need to make this legal now. Uh, <laughs> 
he began the practice of lifetime bans for cheating and disallowed serving beer and playing games on Sundays. This, oh. this was going to be the uh, civilized man's baseball league. That would not fly nowadays, <laughs> let me tell you. In Wrigley, of all places, for sure. They would riot, strike. But then again, in these days, we're playing in Grant. They, they say don't bring alcohol, but then they, like, let you walk past. Well, that's Millennium Park, actually. <laughs> Oh, man. Wine picnics uh, with the Petrillo shell? Heck yes. All the wine picnics. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've f- never seen a wine picnic till you go to Millennium Park. And then the you'll summer. see a hundred. People are fancy. <laughs> they're pop-up tables and yeah. they're like wine coolers. Things get lit when you watch the symphony in the park. <laughs> never seen so many uh, grandmas having a great time. <laughs> but back to the 1800s. Oh, okay. Adrian Cap Anson was Chicago's first star player and then went on to be player manager. Uh, he was one of those few people recruited by Hubert in 1875, was named captain manager by the team in 1879. Captain manager is a great title. Yeah. <laughs> you are our captain and you also manage us. These are mutually exclusive normally, there should be but you're the guy. There should be some musical song about that. Yeah. Like major general, but you know, captain manager. What are some of the skills that a captain manager has, dear? I don't know. You're waiting for the song to tell che- you. Chewing a lot of tobacco. The most tobacco. Nobody like, chews as much. On both sides at the same time, and like spitting twice at once. It takes talent and practice. Yeah, yeah. Practice that you folks should not uh, have. Be be good to your gums. Don't don't do that. It's gross. <laughs> I saw uh, a guy spit into a trash can today, and I wanted to, like, applaud him. I was like, thank you for using the trash can, at least, <laughs> and not just the CTA floor. Oh, I hate that. I hate liquids on the train. Some people started pointing at something on the train, and I got really worried that there was, like, liquid rolling towards me, but someone just dropped something. It was okay. Whew. I was like, oh, boy, it's not it's not pee. So, Cap Anson. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk about pee. <laughs> okay. He became manager in 1879, and uh, between 1880 and 1886, the team won five National League pennants. So he did a pretty good job. That's a good amount. Uh, He innovated the hit-and-run play, spring training, use of a third-base coach. Like, baseball is the way it is in part because of Cap Anson. And uh, at the same time, he was the team's best hitter. He still holds franchise records for career runs, hits, and RBI. In fact, the uh, RBI statistic was invented by the Chicago Tribune in order to report on him. He was so central to the team. It was uh, definitely his team in reality and in perception. So the, the press renamed the team Anson's Colts in the late 1880s. Th- they went from the Chicago White Stockings to... The Chicago Colts. Okay, okay, some some horses. Uh, Anson is also remembered today as a fierce defender uh, of the color line, that is, the uh, segregation of Major League Baseball. Mm. He refused to let his team play against any black players. There, there were none in the National League, but they sometimes played exhibition games against teams in other leagues, teams that were integrated. Well, not when they played Chicago. Uh, he would either uh, just walk or force them to bench any black players. This guy's a jerk. A little bit. A little bit. 
Hall of Fame manager Sol White said in a 1907 book, quote, Were it not for this same man Anson, there would have been a colored player in the National League in 1887. Well, there we did have Anson, so uh, the rest of us had to wait until Jackie Robinson. Uh, he was fired as manager in 1897, ending a 27-season career on the field. Good. <laughs> I don't like him now. Eventually, that was good. Now, without their, their grand leader, who by now is known as Pop Anson in his uh, uh, advanced age for a player, the press renamed the team again the Chicago Orphans. What? Because they lost Pop. Orphan as a mascot. <laughs> a little too depressing. You you bring him out during the seventh inning stretch and out, everyone like, cries. Just bring out like Oliver <laughs> and have him say like, "Please, sir, I want some more, <laughs> some more baseball." Hey, imagine if that was still the name and like they tried to like have freaking like costumed orphan. <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah. it might be better than like that weird cub bear that they came up with. It might be. It's not great. It's not a great no. look. As we all know, Chicago is a city split between uh, two teams. You've got your South Side team. South Side! And the Cubs, the West Side team. Mm, not really. Not really. It's not really West. Where did they play that made them West? Uh, well, for, for about 30 years, from 1885 through 1915, they played in West Side ballparks in what is now University Village. Uh, they played no. on okay. either side of what is now um, the the UI Coliseum. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So they they played between it was it would have been between Roosevelt and like the Blue Line. Now during this era, that's when the nickname Cubs first appeared, 1902. It became the sole nickname by 1906, and actually put on the uniforms uh, first an actual little cub. In 1908, then replaced with the word Cubs in 1909. So this is the first, like, official adoption of one of these uh, press-applied nicknames. So was it because they wanted a nickname for this orphan mascot? They decided to call him, like, <laughs> Cub? Cubby? Because animal orphans are cute and not depressing, like human orphans? No, that's even worse. <laughs> Poor little abandoned animal. I, it's, Something it's... else is going to eat it. I think it's because they were, like, young up-and-comers. Uh, because they've been around for a while. The team, yes, but the individual players, not so much. You, you can win a lot of ball games with a very young team, as we learned this year. Now, th this time was the Cubs' most successful period in the modern era, or for sure the 20th century. Tinker, Evers, and Chance were... Uh, playing the infield for many years, and were completely dominant. Uh, Chance became the new player manager in 05. Uh, the Cubs set a wins record in 1906 that has not been broken since. They finished the year 116-38. and 38. That's about 80 games over 500, a completely impossible task in today's game. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of wins. Uh, it is incredible for a team to get more than uh, 116 wins today but that's because they play like 50 60 more games per year than they did back then <laughs> now they they won the pennant in 06 07 08 and 1910 uh with world series wins in 07 and 08 so yeah that most winning team ever in 1906 uh they did not win the world series you know who did no chicago white Sox. Yeah. 
in the first and only Crosstown World Series here in Chicago. Hate to know what the CTA was like that day. <laughs> uh, so that 07 and 08, uh, those World Series wins, are technically speaking Chicago's only championships. Major League Baseball does not recognize championships before 1903. Oh, why not? The World Series between the National and American Leagues were not uh, the first time where a champion of one league played another. But Major League Baseball only recognizes the National and American Leagues as major leagues. Oh. So it's a, a way of them like putting a, uh, a monopoly on what counts as history. Baseball is all about the statistics. It's all about the record books. So they decide what goes in. It, it's, a, it's a powerful position. See. 1908 is also remembered for what one of the, the most infamous calls in baseball history, what has become known as Merkel's Boner. Meh. Would you like to hear about Merkel's Boner? I don't know if I want to. Well, I'm going to tell you. Okay. Tell me about the boner. So 1908 was a real tight year. The Cubs and the Giants were tied in the, in the pennant race and played in the Cubs' the last game of the season. Uh, most of the game was tied one-to-one. In the bottom of the ninth, the Giants come up to bat. Two outs. There's a runner on third, and Fred Merkel is sitting on first base just waiting to run. He's sitting? He's just sitting there? He's supposed to be standing up. I'm speaking metaphorically. Bridwell comes up to bat and hits a single, sending uh, the runner on third home, winning the game. So fans immediately swarm the field. It's a huge dramatic moment. Uh, they, they win the pennant. They're going on in the World Series. Home team pulled it out in the last minute. Uh, Merkel uh, goes straight to the dugout to celebrate. Now, what Merkel did not realize or did not recall is that there was a rule on the books at the time that if somebody is forced out in the course of a play, any runs scored during that play are called back and do not count. Cubs second baseman Evers did remember that rule. He retrieved the ball, tagged second base, technically forcing Merkel out and nullifying the run. Oh. He went up, he tagged the base, he told the umpire, hey, there's a rule, I tagged the base, and the umpire was convinced, even in the midst of uh, the, the crowd going wild, that, yep, uh, that run doesn't count. So the game was declared a tie, they couldn't possibly go back in that state. I think yeah. people had already started, like, going home. Uh, <laughs> and they scheduled a makeup game, which the Cubs won winning the pennant, and going on to win the World Series against the Detroit Tigers. The last World Series they would have for 108 years. So if it wasn't for that dude who was like, boop, look, I did it, if it they would have been, that would have happened. If it weren't for Evers, it would have been the end of their season instead of the last game before winning their second consecutive World Series. Goodness. Obviously a very controversial uh, uh, call. Yes. The umpire was not very popular uh, in the Giants' yeah, hometown. I don't think so. And there is even debate as to whether the, the ball was live or not. It may have been handled by somebody other than uh, Evers so and the like, Cubs' uh, center fielder. So like all the people rushing the field. Like all the people rushing the field. If any of them got a hand on the ball, then the play was dead and it doesn't count. 
I'm, Giants win. It's pretty likely someone at least kicked it. It's pretty, pretty darn likely. But that's really the end of the, the West Side era. Now we get to the, the symbol, the landmark, the home of our Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field. Lucky Charlie Wiegman was president. <laughs> Wiegman. Yeah, yeah. Was president of Chicago's Federal League team. And, you know, a team needs a field. So he signed a 99-year lease on land from a Lutheran seminary at Clark and Addison and built a baseball stadium in less than two months with a capacity of 14,000 people. Today, that field holds over 41,000 uh, people in the stands. Is, is that now after the renovations or before the renovations? Uh, after many, many decades of renovations. Oh, well, I mean the most recent ones that like just ended like last year. That is the most recent count I could okay. find. Okay, okay. Yes. The park was designed by Zachary Taylor Davis, who was known to baseball fans for uh, designing Comiskey Park four years earlier. Hey! That's right. Until 1990, when they tore it down, Comiskey Park was the oldest and most historic baseball stadium in Chicago. Stupid whackers. <laughs> Could have kept that title! Guaranteed rate field, as no. it is now known. no. Is very no. comfortable and it's really nice I, to watch games there. I do love Cellular Field. Yes, <laughs> the cell is a great place to go. I love it. It's beautiful. It's very comfy. There's lots of bathrooms and they let puppies in once a year. <laughs> it is called the Cell. Not anymore. Or the White Sox place. It is called the White Sox place. Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Not, we're not calling it for that. So Wiegman Park, as it was originally known, and therefore still known, uh, was well known for its cleanliness and its good food. Uh, Wiegman was a successful promoter. He was also a restaurateur, which you, explains the food. You know, I'm going to start calling it Wiegman's. Yeah? Mm, Wiegmanville. Yeah, why not? And make people really confused. <laughs> But in any case, he built a real nice place for people to go spend a day at the ballpark. However, the Federal League as a whole wasn't as successful and folded. Now, Wiegman got a bunch of cash from having his team and used it to buy the Cubs for half a million dollars and move them to his ballpark in 1916. Later that year, Bill Wrigley, yes, of gum fame, uh, bought a controlling interest in the team, and not long after that, uh, bought a controlling interest in the park and renamed it after himself. One of the founding NFL teams moved from the suburbs into the city of Chicago and needed a place to play themselves, so they played their games in Wrigley Field when, you know, the baseball team wasn't using it, obviously, mm -hmm. from uh, 1921 to 1970. And as a thank you to the Cubs organization, they named themselves the Bears. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> the scoreboard uh, was installed in 1937. I say the scoreboard because it is the one there to this day. Uh, there is a person inside it during the games changing the numbers by hand. Uh, they've got a little computer readout, but for most of its time, there was actual like ticker tape. <laughs> like old-timey stockbrokers had. It has never been hit by a home run. However, they have gone past it and out onto the street on both the left and right side. Yeah. So it's possible. It's just never happened yet. <laughs> going back one subject. So you said the 
Bears played there till 1970. So they yeah. didn't even play at Soldier's Field when no. Soldier's Field, like, it was, it was decades mm-hmm. till they moved there. You know who played there? The team that is now the Arizona Cardinals. What? The Arizona Cardinals now, uh, as of a few weeks ago, hold the record for the longest championship drought in pro- American professional sports. Goodness. Wrigley uh, is also famed for being the final professional ballpark to get lights. Uh, they didn't play a night game until August 9th of 1988. <gasps> you were, we were I alive. Was, I was alive. I was five days old before Wrigley got lights. <laughs> we're older than it having lights. <laughs> now, there were plans to install lights back in 1942, but instead they donated all that metal to the war effort. And never went back to it. This took another Uh, 40 years. Yeah, it took... To get metal. It took threats from the league that you will never play a postseason game at home unless you install lights. Because that is when uh, the TV contract became so important. So Uh, therefore, playing in primetime, so after sundown. Well, you know, the days get shorter, there's less light. Yeah. You need lights. It makes sense. (laughs) So uh, you can't really talk about the Cubs without Wrigley, and you can't talk about Wrigley without the, the park traditions. Those traditions. The, the traditions of getting way too drunk at two in the afternoon. And waiting an hour for a bathroom because they don't have enough. And all of these renovations, like... No one touched the bathrooms <laughs> until recently. Yeah, well, one of the <laughs> earliest ones, they actually split the grandstand in three parts, put some of them on wheels, and moved them around to fill in more seats in the the spots in between which is why uh, it doesn't have like a smooth curve if you look at it from above (laughs) they can go through all that effort but they can't put in real urinals in the men's rooms or or like more than like two female restrooms (laughs) we were like sitting in the topmost row last time we went yeah and i had to climb back down to like ground level and then, like, around some back hallway to find, like, the only bathroom on that side of the stadium. Chicken fingers are pretty good, though. Where are they? I don't remember. <laughs> so one of the most visible traditions at Wrigley is the Cubs win flag. Uh, they started flying that along with the scoreboard in 1937. That's where they hang it from. After every Cubs home game, uh, if they win the game, they, win, they fly a white flag with a blue W if they lose, it's a blue flag with a white L. Uh, so that people walking by, going by on the train, can look up and see how the team did that day. It's lit up, it's visible from the red line platform, and for 80-ish years now, that's how people got their news. It's like looking up at the clock at Macy's. I was going you don't to- gotta buy a newspaper to know how the Cubbies did today, you just walk past. During the playoffs and everything i was walking to like teach one day and i it's like a 15 minute walk down a residential street Mm -hmm. and literally every house had like either a printout or a real sign or something of the w so in the past in the past two three years when the cubs have gotten good uh people have taken this as a sign of look my team is successful Let me hang. I doubt any of them have the L flag, though, to like hang up, be like, oh, yep, they didn't do well today. <laughs> and you know, the real fans are the ones who only hang it after a game when they win. And Pe- don't just leave it up. People all the time. who put it up on a day they're not even playing, come on, come on. 
visitor home runs are thrown back onto the field. The Cubs fans don't want that. You you take that back. The the Cubs victory song, Go Cubs Go, which you'll be healing, hearing real soon. Go uh, Cubs Go. Just go that Cubs soon. Go Hey, Chicago, what do you say? Cubs are going to win today. It's catchy. It's very catchy. It's the one thing they got going. And it's surprisingly recent. Uh, It was written in 1984 by Steve Goodman and only became the win anthem in like the mid-2000s. It's been re-recorded. People have tried to replace it because while it is catchy, it's also pretty hokey. (laughs) Eddie Vedder wrote a song that some people really want to be the Cubs' new win anthem. But in any case, after every home win, the PA starts playing Go Cubs Go. Bill Murray sang it on SNL. Like, I don't think it's going anywhere now. (laughs) I think it's it's set. Another thing about Wrigley is that because of this history, this length of tradition, the fact that they have a hand-painted analog scoreboard it's just a place for people to hang out in the ballpark surrounded by a million bars yep (laughs) and just have a good old time in the bleachers where there may or may not be a baseball game happening next to it remember that one time we went and we had those seats against the back fence yes they were the last row and if that fence broke we were gonna die and fall out onto like mcdonald's (laughs) that sucked they didn't even win that day. No, and it was but freezing. It was Wrigley's 100th anniversary season, opening week, and I'm darn glad I was there. I had to go buy hot chocolate just to hold it. <laughs> I was frozen. <laughs> that was overpriced hot chocolate. So while we argue about what our memories mean, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Baseball season's underway. Well, welcome back, everybody. Hello. We, we've talked about the history of sort of their uh, infrastructure, their their physical monument to baseball. So let's get back to what the team's been doing in the last hundred or so years. Now, something you've almost certainly heard of if you are following uh, their run this year or their past, not quite as successful years, the curse of the Billy Goat. Yeah, I've heard about that. I don't know what that's about. Okay. I assume there's a goat. There is. You're going to love it. You love goats. Goats are really cute. Yeah. They like to headbutt each other, but sometimes they do it really carefully. Especially when they're like baby goats that don't know how hard they, they can take it yet. We should find that video to they share with people. Tap. They tap. Yeah. They're all like, tap. I want to include that in the show notes for people. Okay. My favorite goat video. Let's turn back the clock to 1945. Uh, game four of the World Series, William Cianis was ejected from the stands. Now, William Cianis was uh, the owner and operator of the Billy Goat Tavern. Yeah. Which, to this day, is in the same spot as it was then uh, on the bottom level of uh, Michigan Avenue. Yeah. It's, just north of the river. It's a little creepy. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's honestly a little weird. A little weird. A little weird. They, they have other locations, but they still have the one they had in 1945, not the original. They also started West Side. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's one of those places, though, if you didn't know what it was, you definitely would not go in it. You'd be like, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. That, that's what the Navy Pier location is for, all, all the tourists. <laughs> but uh, he had bought two box seats to come see the game. One for him and one for his goat. Aww. They're going on a date. Goat date. Uh, Maybe it was the goat's birthday. In between innings, he'd just parade the goat around, uh, glad hand, promote himself, promote his restaurant, uh, just having a grand old time. Some people weren't very happy with this, and the goat got ejected from the game because it was too smelly. Goats don't smell that much. This goat did. How do you know? The people complaining about the goat would contend that this goat did. Oh, they were probably just making that up. They probably just didn't want the goat around. They were probably, like, sneezing They probably allergies. just didn't want William Sianis around. <laughs> so while he was being ejected, Sianis told them, Them cubs, they ain't gonna win no more. And this is the root of the curse of the billy goat. Now, it's a very vague curse. Uh, does that mean the cubs wouldn't win the pennant? Uh, does it mean they wouldn't win the World Series again? Is there a time limit on this curse? It's very vague. Now, Cyanus's family says that he sent a telegram to Wrigley the next day with a bit more detail. Quote, you are going to lose this World Series, and you are never going to win another World Series again. You are never going to win a World Series again because you insulted my goat. Don't insult the goats. Don't do it. The goat didn't do anything to you. And he was right. Uh, the, He's probably like, I told you so. The, the Cubs did go on to lose that series in seven games. Uh, the Cubs did not even win the pennant again until just this fall. But here's some other uh, explanations for some of that bad luck. What if it was a hundred years of bad karma for Merkel's boner, angering the gods of baseball? Let's not talk about boners. <laughs> Let's talk about goats. Okay. Let's definitely not talk about both at the same time. No. Uh, what if it was a result of uh, not having lights and playing all of their summer home games in the heat and humidity of Chicago summers? You know, that could have something to do with it. That could really, you know, have hurt them there. Th this is something that's been proposed, but it's one I don't really believe because the visiting team is facing the same heat and humidity of the midday. Th like, they probably play a lot more night games then. Right. Where if... The Cubs are playing mostly day games. They're going to be more exhausted over a longer period of time. Like a stamina thing. Yeah. Okay. They're, All right. they're, not, they're not getting the break of having a home game that's at night. Mm -hmm. They're having to do it all in the heat of the day. Here's another explanation. What if, because uh, the owners knew Wrigley and later the Tribune Company, that they could sell out the stadium just because it is the Cubs, just because it's Wrigleyville, because it's tradition, so they didn't have to spend money on good players. There's that, too. There's that. <laughs> so that brings us to the dark times, the sad, dark ages, where uh, you went to see the Cubs because they were lovable losers and because you liked a day in the ballpark with the Ivy. You and overpaying for beer. That's true in every single ballpark in America. Yeah, but I feel like Cubs fans, like, they get a lot more drunk than White Sox fans, and I think it's because they just knew what was waiting for them. <laughs> They're just like, well, this is all I got. To, to be a Cubs fan, it takes dedication. It takes love for the game as it is played, not uh, success. 
You know, it's not a bandwagon team until very, very recently. <laughs> I think it was more so as just a great place to go socialize with people because you could go to a bar before and after. And during. Hey. And during. <laughs> during this long, long period, the Cubs would occasionally post winning seasons, but not very often. They even won a few division titles after divisions were invented. Uh, but the Cubs winning was treated as this wild fantasy. Just look at Back to the Future 2. You know it's this bizarre future where everything's topsy-turvy because the Cubs win the World Series. Yeah. Rookie of the Year, uh, a slightly more recent movie. It takes this magic kid so the Cubs can just win anything. I like that movie. Is it better than Angels in the Outfield or is Angels in the Outfield better? Darling, you're going to start a shooting war between our listeners. They're going to split up into camps, and we're never going to be able to put the lid on this. I'm trying to figure out for myself as well. I'm not sure. I haven't seen recently. Next to one another, I would say Rookie of the Year is a much more cynical film. Like, Angels in the Outfield is about hope. Yeah. It's about dreams and, and reuniting a young boy on his and his estranged father. Yeah. Rookie of the Year is about a pitcher with a big butt. <laughs> Pitcher's got a big, but you know what's better than both of them? Sandlot. Well, obviously, that's hands. Sandlot down. wins. We can all agree. Sandlot wins. Anyways, you were saying? I was saying there, there's a, a short story called The Thrill of the Grass, which is great. That sounds like a book about a dog. <laughs> it's about baseball. A it's, dog who really likes grass. It's about the Cubs winning the World Series on the same day of the apocalypse. Well, you know, it was pretty true. And they were off by like a week, but they were pretty true. Uh, there were some bright spots uh, during this this period of many decades. Uh, obviously, Sammy Sosa's uh, home run race with Mark McGuire, very exciting. But I'd like oh, to- yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd like to talk- about a man named Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. Oh, uh, yeah. Mr. Sunshine uh, is another nickname he got. He played for the Cubs from 1953 to 1971. Long, long career. Mm -hmm. He was a 14-time All-Star, a two-time league MVP, and the first Cubs player to have his number retired. Aww. He was also the Cubs' first black player. And for a part of a game after he retired as a player... And uh, was hired on as a coach. He became the first black manager in Major League Baseball. He, after uh, the manager was thrown out, assistant manager was thrown out of the game. Ernie Banks came in and uh, served as manager for two innings on May eighth, nineteen seventy three. Yeah. So uh, he he broke the manager's color line for a little bit of one day. Then it was right back in place. So uh, Ernie Banks died just a few years ago. Yeah. And uh, the the whole city really came out for him. And it's moments like that where even when, yes, being a Cubs fan is mostly about uh, drinking on a, a summer afternoon, part of it really is passion for the game and, and for the team. It's rooting for the underdog in the, the purest form. So uh, another notable name, Harry Carey, who you might know from Will Ferrell's uh, Saturday Night Live impressions. There's also several restaurants yeah. in Chicago with his name. Something people do, not just in Chicago, but I mean, we've got uh, the Michael Jordan Steakhouse. Harry Carey has a small chain of restaurants. That's a thing. You got a bunch of money, you, you build a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> he became WGN's Cubs commentator in 1981. 
But he was already known to Chicago sports fans because he'd spent uh, the 10 years before calling Sox games. Hey. Everything the Cubs have, they got from the Sox. Those thieves. Except the name. That went the other way. (laughs) So he remained the voice of the Chicago Cubs through the 1997 season. That's not because he retired. It's unfortunately because he died in February 1998 at the age of 83. So one more Wrigley tradition that uh, remains to this day came from Harry Carey. He'd always lead the crowd in take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch. He's not a good singer. Uh, the, the tempo wasn't, he didn't really keep up the pace, <laughs> but is just a fun thing to do. Uh, he, he was quoted once as, uh, I would always sing it because I think it's the only song I knew the words to. So now, very, very often, home games will have a celebrity guest fulfill his duties. Of course, for the uh, World Series this year, they, they got the, the biggest Cubs fan celebrities they could. So we had Bill Murray, Vince Vaughn, and Eddie Vedder singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch. Oh, yeah. I love Michael Shannon's uh, <laughs> from like, what, a year and a half ago? Yeah. So good. Well, Michael Shannon makes everything so good. <laughs> I, I I just hope one day I run into that man on the train. I love when they get a really enthusiastic person who cannot sing. Because <laughs> it is the truest continuation of Harry Carey's legacy. Yeah. Michael Shannon doesn't do musicals. If Harry Carey had a catchphrase, it would be, Holy cow, which was his go-to exclamation. He trained himself to say that in instead of anything else, even when he wasn't on the mic, so that he would never accidentally curse on the air. Makes sense. He's not on a delay. They don't have a quack. There's nobody covering that up. I use, oh, goodness, a lot when I teach. (laughs) Anything I say becomes, oh, goodness. You should try Holy Cow. It's fun. Eventually, you know, uh, law of large numbers, impossible things happen. The Cubs did have successful years. One of them came in 2003. They made it all the way to the National League Championship Series. This whole city was on pins and needles, just waiting for the impossible to finally happen. Game six. The Cubs are winning. This is an elimination game. They, they win that night. They go on to the World Series for the first time in nearly 100 years. Moises Alou reached up to catch a foul ball in the top of the eighth. It would have been the second out of the inning, leaving only four more outs to go before they win the game and the series. But who didn't see Moises Alou was Steve Bartman, a Cubs super fan. He reached out and caught a piece of history. He grabbed the ball out of Moises Alou's mitt. Oh! What you need to understand about Steve Bartman is he's the kind of guy who had headphones in listening to the game being called on the radio while he was there. That is an old-school baseball fan move. Mm-hmm. And these were good seats. These were, He was right on the edge of the wall. He had, must have been saving up. I mean, even in the regular series, these would go for a pretty penny. But game six of the NLCS, and it turned out to be the worst day of his life. He screwed them over so bad. Moises Alou was not a man to keep his emotions to himself. 
I would not call it a tantrum, but because I'm nice. If you were to, you would not be wrong. <laughs> People are upset. Baseball's a slow game. There's plenty of time to let this stew. There's plenty of time to let this set. There's plenty of time for everybody in that, those stands, everybody watching TV at home, to picture in their mind's eye a goat being thrown out of the stands. Uh, the Marlins went on to score eight runs in that inning. It was a nightmare that would not stop. Obviously, they won the game. They went on and won the next game in another come-from-behind win and advanced to the World Series. The Cubs did not win another playoff game for 12 years. Is Bartman still alive? Bart did someone murder him? Bartman is still alive despite people's best efforts that night. Security had to escort him off the field for his own safety. Now, once again, there's no Jumbotron. There's no big screen in Wrigley Field. So people who identified them, who identified him in the stands, were being called, were being texted by their friends and family who were watching it on TV out at the bar back at home. Well, it's 2003. They were probably being called. Yeah. Oh, they weren't, we weren't texting really then. Like people calling, did you see what happened? He's sitting in the front row in the corner, the aisle seat. That dude with the hat. <laughs> it's his fault. Now, Bartman has turned down every offer to speak or appear publicly or gain any fame since the incident. And those offers, a lot of them have come with a lot of cash attached. He is doing everything he can to stay out of the public eye. He could have marched in the parade this year. Turned it down. He, well, because someone would have, like, He could have thrown him. out a ceremonial first pitch in the World Series. Turn that down. Because, again, someone would have attacked him. There was a 30 for 30 ESPN documentary about this uh, play that uh, compares it to uh, Bill Buckner, the, the ball going between his legs, in, in another famous baseball playoff mistake. Uh, they offered him... I think the figure was $300,000 or maybe $500,000. He turned that down, left it on the table like, no, it was an awful day. Do what you're going to do. I'm out. I mean, he did basically ruin like his favorite thing ever for himself for the rest of his life. For another 13 years. <laughs> I don't know. He's still like, he's, he's still I don't think he, this is something like he's probably living down. <laughs> yeah. So the ball was bought at auction. He, he didn't go home with it. It got recovered and was auctioned off in 2003. Was bought by the Harry Carey restaurant, actually, who then exploded it in a ceremony in early 2004 to sort of like dispel the, the whatever luck was in this ball. So uh, to commemorate it, some of the exploded parts were boiled and the steam was captured and distilled and infused into a Ugh. special pasta sauce. <laughs> oh, no. I don't yeah. want a baseball-infused sauce. Special Bartman ball sauce. Ew. A lot of the exploded remains are on display in the Chicago Sports Museum at Water Tower Place. Where there's also a Harry Carey's. Yeah, uh, the sports museum is actually managed by the Harry Carey's Restaurant Group. Yeah. If you look up its website, it, it, it's a tab under locations for Harry Carey restaurants. But with that one final exultant failure, we come around to the new Cubs, the successful World Series champion Chicago Cubs. 
So in 2009, things start to turn around when evil capitalist Thomas Ricketts buys the team. Yeah. He was a Cubs fan since he came to Chicago for uh, college. He apparently met his wife out in the bleachers. But the thing about evil capitalists is they want to win, especially when they buy, you know, their favorite sports team. It's not enough to make money. They got got to get the rings. So he hires Theo Epstein as president of baseball operations and Joe Madden as manager. Theo Epstein managed the Red Sox when they broke their 86-year World Series drought in 2004 and then came back to win again in 06. So between uh, the two of them, they built a very talented, very young team. Uh, at least 11 players are younger than us. And therefore, babies. And therefore, even younger than the lights that they play under. I can't wait till there's a player where you can be like, you're younger than that bathroom renovation. (laughs) That will never, ever happen. They did a little bit of something during that last renovation. It wasn't much, but they did a little bit from what I heard. I think they added a few stalls or something. I don't think there's a single urinal in all of Wrigley Field. Probably not even in, in the offices. Do the players get the trough? I would hope so. If I got to deal with it, they got to deal with it. So this is the year it all finally came together. They were very successful last year, but not quite. Uh, They won 103 games in 2016. The National League's entire starting infield for the All-Star game was Cubs players. Now, Darlin', do you know where the first uh, Major League Baseball All-Star game was played? No. Comiskey Park. Go Sox. My boys! That brings us to the postseason. Uh, in the division series, they beat the Giants 3-1. to one. Game 3 was a nail-biter, went 13 innings, and this is the Giants' only win. The Cubs scored four runs in the ninth inning to come from behind and win the clinching game, Game 4. That was exciting. Uh, so then the National League Championship Series, where they beat the Dodgers 4-2. to two. Game six, the Cubs pitchers allowed only the minimum 27 batters, three per inning. The first time that it happened in the postseason for 60 years. The World Series, maybe one of the most exciting World Series in living memory, uh, went seven games, beat the Indians, came back from being down three to one after the first four. People were starting to count their chickens before they hatched a little bit. People were looking at uh, the, the betting odds in Vegas. But then you lose two games at home. You're down three to one. Every game is now an elimination game. Now you look at the odds and they are not in their favor. But then they won on Sunday. And while coming back from three to one is nearly impossible, coming back three to two, no, it is impossible. And they went on Tuesday, and they push it to Game 7. All the excitement is back, because now it's real. It could happen. Fingers crossed. He <laughs> sacrificed this goat. It, it, it went from, <laughs> well, of course it's their year, to now, fingers crossed, edge of the seat. You know? Uh, it's much more honest. You know, they really had to earn it. <laughs> so then comes Game 7. I don't know. It's got to be like the most exciting baseball game ever because while on its own, uh, the the back and forth, the give and take that I'm about to talk about is exciting. When it is game seven between the two teams that have gone the longest without a World Series win in their history uh, after 
everything else that led to it. It was excruciating tension. After seven innings, the Cubs are winning six to three. Like, I'm sure that some of the less superstitious-minded people are already putting on their their hats and their t-shirts. But then the Indians tied it in the eighth. Flashbacks to 2003 (laughs) and sent the game to extra innings. Not only that, that was when our neighbor threw their coffee table. <laughs> I knew, I knew something bad happened because there was a crash and screaming across the hall. And I'm pretty if, sure it was a coffee table. <laughs> and as if that wasn't enough to set everyone on edge, to uh, have people filing insurance claims. Hope it wasn't a nice coffee table. Then the rain came. A 17 minute rain delay just so people can. St- do in their nerves, players and fans alike, uh, between the ninth and the tenth innings. Now the Cubs scored two in the tenth, and the Indians answered with only one. Cubs win eight to seven with forty million people in the television audience. It was incredible. We only watched one inning of the World Series, but it was the tenth inning of Game Seven, so that counts. <laughs> Aren't you glad I asked you like seven times? Are you sure you don't want to watch it? Thank you, dear. You're welcome. You're so supportive and kind. Like, I think we've made it clear throughout this episode Mm -hmm. that to what degree we care about professional baseball at all, we're Sox people. Yeah. And to a degree, Tigers people. Yeah. Or otherwise my dad will disown me. Always, always, always got a, got a special place for them. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big old softy, you know. <laughs> yes, the, the you were you were very into it. The city got swept up in hysteria, and, and you can call me a bandwagon fan. And sure, I won't be back next year, but I'm I'm a fan of the mood and the passion more than I am the team. There's a heck of a lot of passion in this postseason. <laughs> And I'm the person who got stuck in a lot of that traffic and a lot of the train rides with the drunk people. And, you know, I didn't like them before. I really don't like them now. So they won. I can recognize it was cool. Okay? I it is cool. It was cool. It is... That was a good ending to watch. But. And you can tell that it wasn't just any World Series because the whole world lost their heads for it. Uh, so, like, Game 7, like we say, ended very late on Wednesday. Big celebration was Friday. Quick turnaround. <sighs> An estimated 5 million people attended the parade and the rally. 7 million was being thrown around at the time, but I've seen more sources say 5. Yes. Which is and, slightly more believable. And stress. Parade route and rally. So many things try to say 5 million people at the rally. No, no, no. Parade route, which took like two hours Mm -hmm. and rally. That's a lot of that's a lot of street. Which is three places. Because there's the parade between Wrigley to Lakeshore, then from Lakeshore to the park, and then the rally in a different part of the park. Yes. I think I was on the train with uh, a good million people. Mm Mm-hmm. That my train stopped running, it lost power, and I was stuck with them underground. Someone's birthday, and they all started singing happy birthday. (laughs) Well, we were stuck, and there was no air. For a birthday present, they got the seventh largest gathering of people in all of human history. 
the the Cubs celebration was a larger gathering of people than the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca in any given year. The population of the Chicago metropolitan area, we're talking about from like Waukegan to Elgin to Joliet to Northwest Indiana, that whole arc is less than 10 million people. So we're talking more than half of that. Yeah. Where where did we put them all? One of the schools I work at uh, had uh, optional attendance that day. <laughs> they decided that the day before when I was there teaching, they're like, yeah, no one really has to show up. Teachers and students alike. If you show up, someone will be here, but I don't know what they did with the children that did show up, but... They probably just watched it on TV. Probably. They dyed the river Cubs blue. Yeah, I look bad. Hey, it's the first time that river's been blue. It looked like <laughs> Clorox bleach. <laughs> and then people jumped in it, and I was like, you're jumping in something that looks like Clorox bleach. Please don't do that. It's also the Chicago River. Don't drink any of it. That was Friday. Saturday, Zobrist, Baez, and Russell had a parade down Main Street USA in the Magic Kingdom yeah. in the morning. While uh, Rizzo, Ross, and Fowler appeared in two Saturday Night Live sketches. Those last three guys got, I think, the better uh, end of that deal, actually. Oh, they got to grind on top of A.D. Bryant? <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Why not? Pretty funny. <laughs> the, Chicago's Archbishop presented a hat and autographed ball to Pope Francis over the weekend. Oh, really? I yes. missed hearing about that one. The whole world celebrated this win. So, darling, what have you learned? I learned about a goat. You learned about a goat. Now yeah. now you know what the deal is with that goat. You know about the goat. It was a, the goat disrupted people's day. was reportedly smelly. I know that the goat was unfairly treated. <laughs> yes. It was discriminated against. Mm -hmm. It was called probably very hateful things. Like smelly old goat? Yes. Okay. It ruined a very good birthday outing. <laughs> or it had its birthday outing ruined, ruined i should say and was defended in a very pointed uh uh telegram as it should mm -hmm. some other stunts that cyanus did to promote his restaurant uh the previous year it's 1944 when the republican national convention was in town and he put up a sign in the window saying no republicans allowed as a publicity stunt <laughs> a whole bunch of Republicans came and flooded the place. I, oh, yeah, well, I'm ordering a cheeseburger whether you like it or not. And he sold out oh, like, no, every day. Oh, no, I hate this. <laughs> That'll be $10. In 1970, he wrote a letter to Mayor Daley asking to be given a liquor license for the moon. The first, like, license to sell alcohol on the moon. I don't, I don't think that's in his jurisdiction. Yeah, I don't know why he thought Daly was the guy to do it, but, you know, he, he wanted to provide burgers and refreshing alcoholic beverage to our astronauts. He's, he's a colorful guy. I like this guy. Interesting uh, fella there. So uh, we're going to be right back with some uh, important news and some letters from folks like yourselves.
Okay, and we're back. Yeah, we got some lovely, lovely letters from folks such as yourselves. Uh, the prompt I gave at the end of the last episode was I wanted to know people's favorite sports moment. And we got plenty of them. Yeah. So uh, our first email is from Josh Joshua. Joshua said that it's very easy to say that the Cubs winning the World Series finally could be their favorite, but they're not going to go with that one. Instead, they went with watching what they could of the Bulls and their repeat, three-peat, when they were very young, because it was time they spent with their family, and they were very excited about what was happening in sports at the time. It's a good pick. Good pick. I like that. This is why I like to watch my baseball games live in person, because that's a good time. Because you're with people. You're in a community. Baseball on TV, normally boring as heck. We watched one inning this year, and it was really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless it's like there's something exciting happening, watching sports at home can be kind of like, meh. Unless it's hockey. I think that's why people, oh, yeah, hockey's great on TV, because hockey is a ballet. Yeah, and I scream a lot. (laughs) Hockey's great with people who aren't you. What? You just can't handle my excitement. Yes, I literally cannot handle the emotional strain you put yourself under when you watch the Red Wings play. I can't handle it either. This is why I've never been to a live game. Because I don't know what I would do. You would require medical attention as soon as they drop the puck. We'd have to get seats by the first aid station. So thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Joshua, yes. Bob sent us an email. Glad you enjoyed our Philly episode. Definitely check out those places. Um, If you guys make your trip happen. And if nothing else, you can use the pictures on our Facebook page to know you're in the right place or not. Yeah. Yeah. But Bob did want to share his favorite sports moment, which was uh, seeing Robin Yount hit his 3,000th career hit. Uh, He grew up in Wisconsin, and his mom was a big Brewers fan who listened to every game uh, they could. Even if they were in the stadium, mom would have her pocket radio. See? Told you. That's a real thing. I know it is. I've seen people with them. My dad never did that. He he would always keep score himself. He's Mm -hmm. one of those guys. Remember when we went to, like, the minor baseball games, he would get his, like, scorecard and mm-hmm. then, like, fall asleep and forget to do <laughs> he, a few. <laughs> he would miss a few batters while he catnads, but when he woke up, he'd be right back on it. The run up to that 3,000th hit was just full of guessing and listening. What game is it going to be? What inning of what game? You know, you get past uh, 2,900 and your hair starts to stand on end. Bob says, I think why it stands out so much to me is that it was just a celebration of a cool milestone that everybody could get behind. And yeah, absolutely. Like, people love human achievement, right? Yeah. And 3,000 hits is a pretty incredible thing. Thanks, Bob. Claritic writes in about a very interesting soccer game. So, uh, the Caribbean Cup of Soccer, 1994 Grenada versus Barbados. Most of the game was a pretty strong Barbados performance. They were up 2-0 with 7 minutes to go when Grenada scores and begins a comeback. This wasn't just your standard, like, March Madness bracket where the winner advances. There were some pool action and tiebreaker weirdness going on. If Barbados won, they would have been out because the teams would have the same amount of wins, but Grenada would have more goals scored across the tournament as the tiebreaker. 
So in the final two minutes, Barbados wanted to push the game to overtime to win by two or more because overtime goals counted for two points, which is a wild rule that I don't understand. (laughs) Soccer's weird. Soccer's weird. So Grenada could do math just as well, and they wanted to win. They wanted to lose by only one goal. So in those final minutes, both teams are trying to score on themselves. See, this is why I can't stand soccer. Is this stuff? <laughs> Barbados did uh, win. They they scored on themselves to tie the game, push it to overtime, and then they got that two point overtime goal to advance in the strangest soccer match that the people watching had probably ever seen in their lives. Thanks, Claritic. Our good buddy, Porin, sent us an email about the 1904 Olympic marathon in St. Louis. Quite a marathon. Quite quite one. Uh, The first guy that passed the finish line uh, gave up after nine miles and drove the rest of the way in a car and pretended he finished first. (laughs) But they found it out. The second guy who legitimately ran had doped himself with rat poison mixed with rum and had to be carried off as he passed the finish line. Well, that's what rat poison will do. Yeah. And the guy who finished fourth out of 32 participants was a Cuban postman who ate a rotten apple along the way and had to lie down from stomach pains. Yeah, he just took a nap in the middle of the Olympic marathon. (laughs) What a marathon that is. The whole 1904 games were arranged by a a major sportsman in America who wanted to use them and the World's Fair going on at the same time as a laboratory to demonstrate the superiority of the white race in in, uh, all sorts of physical attributes. That's messed up. It's a thing. So Porin guessed that this might be the story our episode was about, but it is not. However, in the show notes, I will link uh, a video specifically about the marathon that I think is really interesting and a story well told. And a podcast, basically a bunch of comedians doing sort of what we do, but funnier because that's their job to be. Thanks. About the, the 1904 Olympics. Thanks, Porin. Thanks. Patchwork Hero talks to us not so much about a sports moment, but a sports mascot, the San Diego Chicken. (laughs) The San Diego Chicken has been over to 5,000 events since 1974 and just roams the stands in Padres games to promote a local radio station, but was so popular it, it got the chance to go on the field dancing and taunting umpires and doing various like mascot shtick now the performer has been the chicken for 42 years with no current retirement plans the chicken is in attack of the killer tomatoes uh was in an emmy award-winning kids show called the baseball bunch appeared at two count them two wrestlemanias although once it was pete rose in disguise (laughs) that dirty cheater i i don't know if that counts as sort of uh, a pinnacle of human achievement, like 3,000 hits, but it's uh, it's something. Apparently he won Comic-Con the first year <laughs> for being disqualified, I mean, but that's still pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Thanks, Patrick Hero. <laughs> David uh, sent us an email doing a little throwback to our Haunted Honeys episode. Um, was reminded 
about this story after us talking about a lot of creepy children. Kids are always creepy. Apparently David was a creepy child. (laughs) Our buddy David here would talk to his dead uncle a lot as a child. Something does not remember, but that his parents insist happened for over two years after his death until he said, well, uncle had to go away somewhere and the ghost conversations never happened again. (laughs) David, you are a creepy child. David's uh, favorite sports moment uh, was the 2002 Winter Olympic career of the Australian speed skater Stephen Bradbury. Uh, It was his fourth time competing, uh, making him one of the oldest competitors uh, in the competition. He was also recovering from a broken neck. That's Um, that's what speed skating will do to you. (laughs) After his first heat, which he won properly, or he placed third in the quarterfinals, but advanced because... One of the two who finished ahead of him was disqualified. Uh, And then he had similar luck after that in the semifinals, where he managed to win when three other racers crashed. And then in the finals, he was really, really far behind. On the final corner, all the other racers crashed again, and he got a win. Australia's first ever Winter Olympic gold medal. That dude had a lot of good luck. Yeah. A lot of good luck. Yeah. He's been nice to every goat he ever met. Pet the goat. Pet all the goats. That's how you win. Don't tell them they're smelly. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) Thanks, David. Noah wrote back and uh, gave us an email that I think could be an outline for an entire episode. Thanks, Noah. Thanks for giving us all our research. But uh, I'm going to try to summarize it. Noah's favorite sports moment is the 1972 Summit Series, a month-long ice hockey tournament between the best hockey players in Canada, and they did allow NHL players in in this specific series against the Soviet Union. The first four games were played in Canada. The the last four would be played in the USSR. They even brought out uh, legendary broadcaster Foster Hewitt uh, from his retirement to call the play-by-play. Now, after some early success... Uh, the Russians came back to win a number of games. Uh, After game five, they had to win the next three in Russia in order to come out on top. I'm I'm having some flashbacks to something I just said a little while ago. (laughs) And they won game six. And they won game seven. But then it came down to game eight, September 28th, 1972. A tie would have uh, Team USSR win on goal differential. So if Canada wanted to win the whole shebang, they needed to legitimately win. It was an unofficial work holiday. Uh, Schools, instead of teaching their subjects, wheeled TVs into classrooms and uh, auditoriums so kids could watch. Mom was in elementary school at the time, remembers no less than three TVs scattered around her school gym because they were so small, all of them cranked all the way up so that uh, the play-by-play could be heard. It was a back-and-forth game, incredible drama, with less than a minute to go, and the game tied at five. Uh, Henderson put himself on the ice and set up a play with... Uh, two, three rebounds, and eventually the pressure was too great on the uh, USSR goalkeeper. It finally went in, and Canada won. This was eight years before the miracle on ice where the American Olympic team defeated a a nearly unbeatable uh, Russian team. Canada got there first. 
Yeah, that sounds like a, an amazing moment of uh, national pride during uh, a tense Cold War situation uh, being fought in sort of a proxy manner by hockey players, the greatest sportsmen on earth. Thanks, Noah. Tammy. Tammy. Tammy, Ian's mom, sent us an email. Tammy grew up in a family of Yankees fans, but in 1969 became a diehard Mets fan, which... Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. That's their song? Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. Yes, that's the Mets song. Okay. Well, um... (laughs) Tammy says it'd be easy to say that their favorite moment is the 1969 World Series, but favorite sports moment is actually there's no crying in baseball except if you're Wilmer Flores. Nowadays, players, or even back then, players, you know, would jump at more money and move to a different team Mm -hmm. and drop a a contract. That is part of why the National League was formed. Yeah. Uh, This memory goes back to watching Flores cry because he thought he was going to be traded to the Brewers. Was very much a moment of love for the team. Old-fashioned loyalty. He got a standing ovation from fans. And it was a wonderful time seeing people rally behind him. The next game against the Nationals, uh, he smacked a home run to win the game. So... That's pretty nice. Yeah, good job, Wilmer. I hope they were glad they didn't trade him because of that. (laughs) So thanks, Tammy. Thank you very much. And now we have a brand new listener writing in, Tam. Yeah, hi. So that's fun. (laughs) Now, Tam writes in from Portugal. Uh, She's not a big sports fan, but, uh, you know, culture is culture. You get exposed to it anyway. There is an infamous speech by Bruno de uh, Carvalho, spokesperson of the Portuguese soccer club, coming from the Chicago Baseball Club school of uh, naming your teams, <laughs> where he compared the Champions League to poop. That, that was the thrust of where he was trying to go, but he was trying so hard to like keep some decorum to maintain his class while providing sass. It came out just sort of muddled and weird, and I'm sure the translation to English makes him sound even more stilted and ridiculous. So, here is what he actually said. In popular slang, because we know Portuguese soccer is bipolarized, this works like the anus, where we have two butt cheeks which face each other and say, I'm here and I'm better than you, among something physiological such as the anus. Either smelly wind comes out, or crap. Thank you for explaining what he was trying to say, because I don't think he said a darn thing, Tam. Uh, She also shares a wonderful moment of uh, sitting with her grandfather watching golf, and as uh, a putt is just about to sink, it seems frozen on the edge of the cup, and then they notice the TV actually did freeze. So (laughs) that's a fun story. Golf, you're just like, wait. Is it still happening? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tam. That brings us to James, who doesn't have uh, much of a sports moment to share, aside from really enjoying the film We Are Marshall, but does have an interesting story that I I think you'd all like to hear in any case. The story is of the 1916 Easter Revolt in Ireland. Maybe Kieran has some resources for James. Y'all should get in touch. Uh, Led by a man named Patrick Pierce. While the rebellion was a failure in the conventional sense, Pierce and his friends were executed as martyrs, which kicked off Ireland's push for independence. Uh, It motivated a lot of moderates who just wanted increased treatment, if not uh, independence, to instead push for independence, including uh, 
famed poet William Butler Yeats, whose poem about that failed rebellion helped inspire more passion for a free Ireland. Uh, eventually, Ireland did become a free state, and then Yeats uh, served as senator in that state. No word on whether or not he possessed a horse-faced horse. I hope he did. I'm willing to bet if he had any horses at all, those horses were horse-faced. But yeah, James, I would have to agree with you. I, I see how you're reminded of both our Haymarket and John Jay episodes. Uh, thanks for, you know, drawing the line of connections. The, the web of human history gets denser every day. <laughs> thanks, James. So if you would like to be in our next or any other uh, roundup of listener mail, where can people send those emails? Uh, emails can be sent to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Fantastic. Yeah. Is there a prompt for episode 15, dear? Yes, there is. I'm what really, is it? I'm really excited about what episode is it? 15. I'm so excited. Tell us. So the prompt for next episode uh-huh. is favorite true story to film. Yeah, favorite movie based on a true story. Yes. Tell, tell me about it. We, we will get at least one Lifetime movie in here, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, Tammy already quoted A League of Their Own, so... Well, it's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> so yes, that is the prompt. And if you'd like to say anything at all, we, we've got some uh, some people write in with questions that don't get read because they get answered. Yes. Uh, any sort of message at all. Send it to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at historyhoneys, on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyhoneys, or Instagram. It's still young. It's still growing. It's still great. Yes. Also, history honeys. <laughs> We've kept a theme here. Can I, can I do some self-promotion? Yeah. Okay. So I run an Etsy shop where I sell knitted items and like... Very cute hand-sewn plushies. I also am open to custom things as well. But if you haven't checked out my shop, What's check the it name out. of the shop? Uh, and my shop can be found on Etsy at Mad Fuzz. Um, so it's Etsy.com slash shop slash Mad Fuzz. Or you can just type Mad Fuzz in. But anyways, the whole point of this is if you haven't checked out my shop, please do. If you have checked it out and you're like, oh, maybe I want to buy something... I'm actually uh, set up a coupon code um, mm -hmm. to since it's the holiday season is upon us. Right. I've set up a coupon code to give you 16% off because it's 2016. <laughs> See what I did there. Um, and that is off of any anything on the shop. 40 any order. years from now, that's going to be a deep discount. <laughs> so the coupon code, if you decide to go check it out and want to buy something, is HH2016. So like... History Honeys 2016, oh, but HH 2016. I get it. That is good between now to December 31st. It's off of anything. I'm only uh, shipping to the US and Canada. But if you live in a different country and you're really interested, shoot me a message. Let me know. And I, um, it's something I've been looking into doing, but mm -hmm. I don't know if there's enough of an interest to like right. take the steps to do that. So let me know if you are. Shipping's tricky, but if the demand is there, come on and demand it's, it. It's, it's worth the... Trouble. It's worth the trouble. 
Your hats and scarves and other knitwear are so very warm and cozy. I'm glad they keep you warm. <laughs> your your zuggles are cute, and I really like the needle felted donuts you've started making. Yes, they're adorable. Yes. Someone recently suggested making like small ones for like oh like donuts. hair clips. <gasps> oh yeah, I really want to do that. I'm just worried about stabbing my fingers a lot. Okay, so we'll see what I can do there. So, yep, yeah, you'll see a link to that in the show notes, and don't forget uh, coupon code HH2016. We can put that in the show notes, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. While you're getting in touch with us and doing some holiday shopping with handmade uh, soft goods from your favorite podcast, uh, why not let people know it's your favorite podcast? Giving yeah. us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher, or wherever else you find us, does so much to help. Thank you very much to everyone who already has. And why not make that your uh, holiday gift to us? Yeah, or tell a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be seeing a lot of people over the holidays. Thanksgiving's next week. Tell everyone at Thanksgiving dinner right. what you're up to. Step one, you tell them a very interesting story uh, uh, about, you know, what happened to the Cubs in 2003. Or, or, tell them about how a lot of people died on the Chicago River. That's a great one for Thanksgiving dinner. And then, when everybody's so impressed with your knowledge, you say, you know where I learned that. Just slide that right in. (laughs) See, we're setting you up for success here. Then you can tell them to follow it up with, like, well, yeah, the ghost of those dead people were in this hotel. That was another episode. See what you can learn here. You're going to need something to talk about this year that won't make people angry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess there's only uh, one thing left to say. I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.